and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on this episode, we discuss Title IX regulations, and it's a really good time to do so because there is a lot going on in this area. First, there is the recent SCOTUS decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, so we'll discuss how this impacts women's sports, and also spend a decent amount of time on the Department of Education. They issued a new Title IX regulation and new Title IX rules in May, so will due process and the presumption of innocence be status quo at colleges and universities? Well, here to break it all down is Nikki Neely. She is the president and founder of Speech First, a nationwide membership that defends students' First Amendment rights through litigation and other means. Over the past two and a half years, Speech First has filed lawsuits against University of Michigan, University of Texas, University of Illinois, and Iowa State University, which had policies on the books that were designed to chill student speech. She has worked at a variety of advocacy organizations throughout her career, serving as the executive director right here at Independent Women's Forum. She was the president of Franklin Center for Government and Public Integrity and creating the Department of external relations at the Cato Institute. It is a pleasure to have you on today, Nikki. Thank you for having me. So I just want to back up and start with a very basic question, which is, can you explain to us what Title IX is? Sure. Title IX is very, it's very basic. It's funny that it's become this huge flashpoint um, because it was an amendment to, um, in 1972, to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There's a very, there's only a handful of words. It says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So, very simple. I mean, doesn't seem very controversial. Yes, it has, over the past you know, several decades become this flashpoint in the culture wars. And so that's that's where we are today. Yeah. And on the surface, like you said, this seems like a great thing. You wouldn't think there'd be any issue with it. But let's talk about what's happened in the past decade or two. How has the definition of discrimination expanded in such a way that it's actually been harmful to to different individuals on college campuses, specifically females? Sure. I mean, I remember when I was at IWF, you know, over 10 years ago, and people thought about Title IX in the context of sports for the most part. So there's not a women's wrestling team. We need to get rid of men's wrestling teams because there has to be, uh, we can't discriminate. There has to be equality across that. Um, and where I think we really start, started to see things go off the rails was um, under the Obama administration, when they really started to expand the definition of what sexual harassment was. Um, to back it up a little bit, there was, in 1999, there was a Supreme Court decision, um, Davis versus Monroe County. And the fact is that it actually was um, referred to a fifth grader in, um, I want to say California off the top of my head, um, who was being um, harassed by one of her classmates, who was very disturbed. Um, he was chasing her around. He was fondling her. And, and so this made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the language in that decision said that... Um, sexual harassment had to be so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it denied um, a student an educational opportunity. Um, and the dissent in that, which was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, which is, is kind of funny because I think of Anthony Kennedy as kind of being a squish, but he was sort of the Cassandra in the way where he said, this is going to open the floodgates to a ton of litigation. Um, this is this specific case is in the K-12 context, but you, you are setting higher ed universities or higher ed institutions up to, you're holding them to the same standard. And so the fact that um, private individuals um, now have a right of action against universities and, and educational institutions, that's what we have seen happen. And you know what, and, and he was totally right, because 
as the Obama administration started to kind of expand the definition of it, they changed one little word. Um, they defined sexual harassment as severe, pervasive, or objectively offensive, which means it didn't have to meet that three-part test. Now, suddenly, you only had to be one of those things to be sexual harassment, um, to be um, creating a Title IX problem where somebody was being discriminated against, that suddenly now the federal government was able to get involved in everything. And I think at the same time, and they did this through um, what's called uh, the guidance documents. So they didn't go through the whole proper rule and comment period that is required for federal regulations. Um, but they also, at the same time, um, kind of vaguely threatened universities. They, um, there was uh, an incident at the University of Montana um, where they worked out a bunch of guidance documents um, and they came up with a plan. They called it a blueprint. And they said, this is like kind of what everybody else around the country has to have. Um, and so if and schools knew that if they didn't comply with that, they ran the risk of being subject to what was called the death penalty, um, losing access to all federal funding. So no student loans, no grants, et cetera. And obviously, for 99% of the universities around the country, that is the death penalty. If you don't have access to federal money and student loans, then you are going to die in the vine. And so obviously, universities did what was the logical thing. They changed all their policies to comply with what the, what the administration wanted. Um, unfortunately, that was in direct conflict with a fundamental set of rights that we know of as you know, the Bill of Rights. Um, and so this violated students' First Amendment rights. This violated students' um, due process rights um, because universities not only had to have the policies on the book that reflected what the Obama administration wanted, but they also had to show that they were taking action in case anything happened. Um, there was a rash of um, students that started uh, you know, encouraging each other to report, report, report everything. And so what we kind of saw was, I mean, and I think of this kind of in economic terms, almost as like a public choice problem where Schools created Title IX offices, and the Title IX officers need to show that there's a problem on campus. So they encourage students to report everything. And then when your reporting numbers go up, it shows there's a problem. Okay, so then suddenly these bureaucracies start to grow and grow and grow. And um, at the end, so it looks like there's a huge problem, you know, a, a crisis on campus when is that what's really going on? Or has, frankly, have mountains been made out of molehills in many cases? And so um, the problem got very, very bad, and that's where that's yeah that's that's why the, the Trump administration stepped in to try and straighten some of this out. And I know that you were talking about people's rights being violated just when because they want to get an education, and the the legal process for them on campus is different elsewhere. So, just to give us maybe a basic example, if you had two adults and they were not on campus, and the woman accused a man of sexual harassment of some sort. How would that be treated differently off campus than if this was an accusation and they were both students at a university? Sure. Um, yeah. If this was just, um, you know, two people meeting in the city of Chicago where there was a, a he said, she said, um, the police would be involved. They would investigate. They would take accounts from both sides. They'd, um, you know, figure out, assess the credibility of one side over the other. Um, universities um, didn't don't have those kinds of policies or didn't have those kinds of policies on the books. Um, a lot of the policies that were encouraged, again, by the Obama administration were um, that the um, basic things, I mean, things that rights that you assume that all Americans have, um, the right to access the evidence against you, the right to know about the charges against you in a timely fashion, um, the right to cross-examine your accuser um, to, to kind of show that their, their credibility, the right to introduce um, uh, evidence that might, um, that might clear your name. All of those things were off the table. And in, in, in many cases, um, schools had something called the single investigator model, where it was one Title IX investigator that would 
talk to the accuser, talk to the accused, look at the evidence, and then they would be, I mean, for all intents and purposes, judge, jury, and executioner. They would, um, they would make a decision. There was nobody else brought in. And again, people coming from this bureaucracy, I think, unfortunately, you know, I guess the, the, the term du jour is bias. They have kind of an, an inherent bias to find in favor of the woman. And so that's why we've seen, I think, over the past, um, you know, 10 years, there's been at least 600 lawsuits brought by um, students who have been accused of, of Title IX violations in state and federal court saying, my rights were violated, I was railroaded. And in many cases, these Title IX, um, these, these Title IX findings have been overruled by federal courts, by state courts saying, this is not how, this is not how these processes are supposed to work. Um, and so the, these, these um, accused, in many cases, you know, boys, have been exonerated. And, you know, you think people now refer to Title IX proceedings as kangaroo courts. And that, in my mind, is the kind of thing that does a disservice both to, um, you know, a- alleged victims as well as alleged accusers, because that's not a just system. If people don't have faith in that system, then, you know, everybody deserves better than that. And as you said, the Trump administration has stepped in on this. The Department of Education did has sought to make changes. On May 6th of this year, they announced that they would issue a final rule imposing certain obligations on colleges and universities under Title IX. What are these new provisions? Sure. Um, you know, as much as the, the press had made it out to be a really apocalyptic thing, um, there were actually a, a number of very basic changes, um, one of which was an express presumption of innocence. Um, According to a 2019 study by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, nearly three quarters of America's top universities do not expressly guarantee students that they would be presumed innocent until proven guilty. That is a horrifying statistic. Um, They improve the impartiality of proceedings. Schools now under the new rules have to provide procedures that are both prompt and equitable. So students are now have time to prepare for interviews and hearings. They um, must receive written notice of the allegations. The universities must disclose prior to interviews the identity of the parties involved in the incidents, what the conduct allegedly was. The fact that students didn't have access to this until now, I mean, as a parent, as a citizen, just absolutely sickens me that this is the kind of thing that students around the country have been exposed to. Students now have access to evidence related to their evaluations. Um, schools must post their training materials um, on their websites to so that you're able to determine is the person who is investigating this, is the panel who you're going up before, um, are, have they been told that there are things like trauma-informed, um, uh, uh, what is it, trauma-informed um, allegations, where um, if, if somebody starts to change their story over and over again under trauma-informed training, um, that is evidence that you, you've been traumatized. I mean, or you know, it could also be evidence of the fact that somebody's making some bits up, but. If, if a training material, if you know what an, what an investigator has been told to, how, have they been told to look at a situation, then that, that will inform your defense, quite honestly. Um, and, and again, this, this single investigator thing has also been banned, which is good. And when do we expect to see these regulations go into effect? Do we expect it in the fall semester? I know so much has been upended because of COVID. Have there been delays in instituting these regulations because of the coronavirus? They were, um, that's a great question. And they are supposed to take effect on August 14th, so very soon. Um, And somewhat surprisingly, unsurprisingly, I'm kidding, um, there have been a number of schools that have pushed back against that. Um, Again, as you said, the rules came out May 6th, and the school said this is is far too short a time horizon for us to be able to implement these sweeping changes. How dare you? And so we've seen, as a result of a number of lawsuits, 
um, asking the, um, the implementation of the rules to be pushed back to allow for more time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pleased that we worked with um, Jennifer Paceris at Independent Women's Law Center to um, intervene in these cases because we believe, first we sent a letter to the Department of Education saying release the rules before they came out. And then we were able to intervene in lawsuits um, because we, we feel that schools have had ample opportunity. They knew this was coming out. They've had a heads up since um, early 2017 that the rules were coming. There were um, preliminary rules that were released. There was a huge amount of feedback. Um, the Department of Education took about 18 months listening to feedback on the different rules to tweak them. So schools have had an ample uh, you know, amount of time to prepare for this. They, they knew this was coming. And with students not on campus because of COVID, Title IX investigators aren't investigating anything. Um, and so they are able to change the policies, do the training, meet via Zoom to discuss these. Um, so this is not something that has been swept in out of the blue, asking people to totally rewrite things. Um, they've had a, a huge amount of time, yet they're still crying foul. And how many legal battles are you talking about? As you just mentioned, IWF's Independent Women's Law Center joined with you in the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, filing a petition in July in the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts, asking to participate in specific little litigation revolving around this. Where else are you trying to help with the litigation process? Are we seeing a lot of cases? Yes. Um, sadly, there have been four major cases that have been brought. One was brought, the first one was, that was brought was by the ACLU, um, that organization that used to respect and defend civil rights. Um, so that was brought in Maryland. Um, there was also a case brought in D.C. by a group of 17 state attorneys general. Um, following that, there was a case that was brought in New York, just solo by the New York attorney general. And then a fourth case was brought in Massachusetts by the, um, the, group, the National Women's Law Center. And so we, working with IWF and FIRE, um, filed motions to intervene in three of them. And then FIRE is intervening on their own in New York for like a complicated set of reasons. Um, and so we were granted um, an uh, intervention. And, and to intervene means that we are now one of the, we are now one of the defendants. We want to defend the rules because um, we want to represent, as you said in the introduction, we're a membership association. Um, and so we represent, our, our members are made up of students as well as concerned citizens around the country. And we believe that the new rules not only um, better protect our student members' rights, um, but that they're actually constitutionally required. And that, somewhat surprisingly, is an argument that the Department of Education and the Department of Justice are not, they've not, they've not made in these cases. And so no matter what happens in November, we want, we want the courts to say, yes, these rules are required by the Constitution. To, uh, and so um, no matter what, who is in charge, no matter what the administration is, um, that there is, they're not allowed to backslide again on due process or um, First Amendment protections as far and, as sexual harassment goes. And Nikki, I have another question for you. I'm sure you have gotten this before, and that is you are pushing for more regulation. You were saying that the Department of Education needs to step in. What do you say to conservatives and libertarians say, we don't need more government involvement, we need less? Why do you think this regulation is the appropriate move we should take? I think what it's doing is it's setting guardrails on it. I mean, yes, I, I, you know, I have worked in conservative libertarian politics for 15 years at this point. And so ideally, there wouldn't be a Department of Education doing all these kinds of things. But, you know, that's wishful thinking. There is and this, you know, the department's not going away, the involvement of the federal government in higher education is not going away. And so that's why I want these kind of guardrails 
that don't allow universities to overstep bounds that will step on students' rights. Um, students are, you know, they're adults, they're citizens, they, they vote, they should be allowed, they should, they should have their rights protected on campus. You know, and there have been Supreme Court cases that have said, you know, that students' rights don't stop at the schoolhouse door. And we believe, you know, they don't stop at, at the campus gates either. And if we have to remind schools through litigation that that's what's going on, so much the better. You know, it's, it's sad that we have to, but unfortunately, um, a lot of these universities, um, they violate their rights, even they violate students' rights, even knowing what their obligations are. And before we go, just want to quickly touch on the Supreme Court decision, Bostock versus Clayton County. That dealt more with the employee-employer relationship and what they said was protecting um, the employee from discrimination. Some people have then said that this case is going to impact women's sports. How could this potentially impact women's sports, this decision? Well, yeah, it's been really interesting to watch groups like Alliance Defending Freedom um, litigate on behalf of female athletes who have felt that um, rules governing, uh, you know, fairness in women's sports that have allowed or enabled the participation of transgender athletes to compete in women's sports, um, they have felt disadvantaged um, on, because it's hard for them to, you know, to, to, to win against people who have different muscle structure, different bone structure, different muscle, muscle fiber composition. Um, and so, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how if, if employers are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, it seems that there are probably implications then for, um, for, for women's sports as far as, you know, Title IX. And you know, if, you can't, if you can't treat an employee differently, then why should you treat a student differently on the basis of sexual orientation? Um, and so how this all shakes out in terms of, um, you know, ADF cases in, I, in Idaho, in Connecticut um, to defend um, the, the rights of, of female athletes remains to be seen. But um, I, think it's, I think it really has opened the door for transgender athletes to compete against women on the same footing that, you know, that, that, that they have claimed that they want. Um, and so that, that might set female athletes back um, in the future. So that remains to be seen. And IWF has been doing a lot in this area. I want to let our listeners know if they go to IWF.org, they can sign the petition demanding for fair play for women. So if you care about women's sports, go and sign the petition. Um, Nikki, just final question for you with these cases that we're seeing revolving around the Department of Education, their new re regulations. What do you think your chances are on on winning these cases do you i mean obviously you have a strong case you have the constitution on your side but do you feel like this is an uphill battle uh you know it's it, it's funny everybody jokes about the courts that there are not trump judges there are not you know obama judges um i do think that we will prevail i do think you know we were granted our motion to intervene in dc which i think is kind of the the big lawsuit of all of them um and i, I am you know i think this will frankly probably end up before the supreme court um but I think that the rules were carefully designed, thoughtfully designed over a period of months um, in order to restore rights that students should have always had in the first place. Um, I think that is a laudable goal. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's ugly, but um, it is a battle, I think, that is worth winning because in the work that I do for Speech First, so much of the, the so many of the problems that I have seen in the campus speech space have come from over-interpretations, misinterpretations of Ten Line. And so I think in my mind, fixing Title IX is almost like cutting off Medusa's head as far as some of the campus speech problems go. And so um, I think this is this is going to go a long way towards restoring equity and fairness on campus um, and restoring a little bit of sanity to what has become, frankly, a, a kind of insane space.
Well, Nikki, we so appreciate your work on Title IX. We appreciate you joining forces with IWF, and we especially thank you for joining us on She Thinks Today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for joining. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so you can let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.